Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, as Pastor Ben Hartwig delivers his sermon titled, Born Again, Off with the Old, On with the New. going to read through verse 24. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 17 through 19. So we will begin at 17, read through 24, focusing through verse 19 there. And then we will pick up next week at verse 20 and go through verse 24. So uh, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So I'll stop there for just a second and just say, uh, pertaining to that first three and a half chapter uh, of Ephesians, that as we look at that and we think about everything that went down in those first three chapters, that we have a recognition that Paul is saying here as a, as a kind of a trans, transition point, because of everything that has happened, because of everything that has occurred, because of who you are now in Christ, because of what's going on, then you must no longer, right? And that's what he says there in verse 17. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Then verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness let's pray Father, we do thank you. We praise you for that which is uh, that Paul had referred to as the newness of life. We thank you, Father, that now through your Son, we have the ability to love your law, love your righteousness and the, the standards that have been put before us. And Father, now it is for us to no longer act as we once did. But now, Father, it is for us to seek your glory, your honor in all that we say and the things that we do. Father, help us in this. Help us as we go through this passage. We look at this. And uh, Father, as we dig into this, recognizing where we were, where we are, and uh, where we need to be. And uh, Father, also, if uh, anyone um, has not called upon your Son for salvation, that they would see the necessity of that and the importance of that and the gravity of the situation that they are in. Father, we thank you and praise you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, whenever you see, if we talk about, if we think about a transition and a point of life, uh, think of death. Okay, let's go to that which is pretty drastic, death. And if you see a, a person die, you're seeing a transition take place. And, and often that begins 
earlier before death, especially if they have a terminal disease or something like this. And if you spend much time with them beforehand, uh, I used to be a hospice chaplain and, and, and whenever you do that kind of work, uh, you see a lot of death, right? And, uh, and, and it becomes, you develop relationships with people and uh, you spend a lot of time with people. And uh, sometimes a lot of people think if you, if you have these thoughts about hospice in your mind that if you go into hospice and 15 minutes later, you're dead, that's not really the way that hospice works. Um, I had patients for months uh, that really uh, you would not have thought that they were anywhere close to uh, uh, where they were in life or death uh, based upon the way they would interact with you. And uh, but anyway, this is uh, it's interesting to see how people handle uh, end of life uh, situations. It's interesting to watch families uh, and how they handle end of life situations. And as you might suspect, depending on uh, salvation in that home, salvation of that person, that's how things are handled quite differently. But I uh, was thinking of one guy in particular as I was kind of going through this and thinking of a of a of a transition into from life into physical death, uh, a patient that I had one time. And uh, this was a guy that I had for some time, months. Uh, he was obviously had a terminal illness, uh, disease. I can't remember exactly what it was, uh, but to, if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't know it. And uh, I would go and visit him. He was living at home by himself. His daughter would come in and look uh, look in on him every, uh, every couple days or so because he was in pretty good shape. And uh, relatively speaking for a guy in hospice he was in relatively good shape and so I would go visit him and we would have great talks we were very like-minded I enjoyed my time with him and I always had to remind myself every time I went there I'm working here and I do have to leave at some point right and uh, but uh, one day I get a call from his daughter dad's dying uh, he is actively passing right now now, this was quite a transition because this was a guy that I'd knock on the door. Here he comes to the door. He answers, hey, how's it going? And you come on in and, and, and all of this. And then now dad's dying. And so I don't know what I'm expecting. You know, I've, is what am I going to see? I walk in, I see quite a transition. When a person starts to die, they change color. And, uh, and, and all of this had started to happen to him. And, um, and, and I'm seeing this and, and watching this and you see this transition, you see the transition the family's going through as they witness this. And, um, and there's something quite dramatic that, uh, that's happening here, right? Quite dramatic part of life, or in this case then, death. But what we recognize when a person repents and a person believes and that person trusts upon Jesus Christ and they are born again, there is a transformation that has taken place in that person. And what we don't often recognize is that transformation that a person goes through whenever they are born again, when they are saved, is far more dramatic than what we see in death. Far more. We don't really think of that because we don't see an outward change in them as far as their appearance. We don't see them go from somebody who is Paul, who the Bible speaks of as dead in trespasses and sins. And that's not just simply figurative language there. It's, it is more than that. That this is a greater transition. This is quite more dramatic that this change when we are saved, this is more radical than the change that is experienced at death. We need to see that. We need to appreciate that. We need to get that. And this is what Paul's saying. Part of what Paul's saying, at least, is in that, listen, this is what happened. So no longer do this, right? 
that you are, yes, you're a citizen of the kingdom. You're a child of God. And yes, it's been realized, but not fully. But it will be. We simply, we begin to experience this divine nature. We begin to experience this at the time of spiritual birth. We begin to experience this whenever we're born again. This is far more dramatic than that transition into death. And our culture, the world around us that we're living in, has a very serious misconception and misunderstanding as it pertains to salvation. Because a lot of people look at, well, I'm going to go to church because I need to get better. I'm going to go to church because it'll improve my life. I'm going to go to church because this whole perfection thing, or fill in the blank with whatever it is that our culture thinks about um, this improvement, this self-help, whatever they might take this to be. This is a transformation. This is something completely new. This is not new and improved. This is something completely new. This is a new mind. This is a new will. This is a new heart. This is a new relationship. This is a completely new worldview, new wisdom, new desires. This is salvation. This is no longer death. This is now life. This is far more dramatic than the one who has physically died. Paul sums these new things, summed up, he sums these up in the newness of life. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that the old things have passed away and the new things have come. This is, again, this isn't just to receive something new. Oh, I got a shiny new car. Great, in a year it's a used car. Uh, this is not like that. This is to get a transformation that is far more significant and radical than that of the physical change at death. You know, it's easy to take something and make it dead. Something alive and make it dead. If you go hunting, you do that pretty easy, right? It's easy to take something that is living and make it dead. Go make something dead alive. Go do that. You can't. God does that. This is far more dramatic and in that dramatic thing that has happened, Paul has said, because of that, you must no longer walk in that way. Now you are walking in this way. In salvation, I am born again and saved, and now I am actually living. I wasn't really living before. I am living now for the first. This is now life. It is no longer I who live. This is Christ who lives in me, right? Paul stated that in Galatians. The new replaces this old. The new man now can do something different. That is to love the law of God, longing to fulfill the righteous demands of the law. Now hating sin instead of loving my sin, longing for deliverance from this unredeemed flesh that I still have have to deal with. So now if we're speaking of the flesh, if we are really dealing with ourselves, what we have to recognize is that we still sin. We need to not to, right? We need to stop it, right? We need to quit that, but we do sin. Why do we continue to sin after we become Christians? Because We'd like to think, and I think maybe there's this thought that, you know, it's all just going to go away and all that'll stop. And, but why is this? Why does Paul have to say what he says in Romans 7? 
No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which, which indwells me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We recognize that this is Christ. This is the struggle. This is part of it. This is what we do. This is God glorifying as we defeat sin, as we overcome sin, that this is all part of it. Sin is still resident in the flesh so that we are inhibited. We are restrained from being able to give full and perfect expression to this new nature that we have, possessing the fullness of this nature, this new nature with the, uh, without the corruption of our unredeemed flesh is a promise that we will only fully realize at glorification, right? That we only fully realize whenever we are at glorification in heaven. Well, that says the, the Bible does not say that we have two natures, right? The Bible doesn't tell us that we have two natures, that we have these two natures in that sense. So the child of God, there is one nature, the new nature in Christ. The old dies, the new lives. This isn't a coexistence. This isn't the, a remaining old nature, but the, there is a remaining garment of the sinful flesh that causes us to sin. Not an excuse, Right? You can't say the devil made me do it. Can't do that. It's not an excuse. It is, however, for me to do the difficult task of fighting sin, struggling with sin, overcoming sin. Why? Because of the Christ that is in me. And whenever I do have that victory over that sin, whenever I have defeated that, it isn't me, it's Christ. Who gets the glory for that? Me or Christ, right? We recognize Christ gets the glory. The Christian is a new person, but that there is that filthy coat, that remaining humanness continues to hinder, continues to contaminate our living. We're transformed, but we're not wholly perfect. There's remaining sin but it does not rain, right? It's not a reigning sin. We're awaiting that. Full salvation is here, but we're awaiting the completeness of that in glorification in heaven, even though we already have it. Um, but at its fullest, at glorification, there will be no sin. But what he's telling us to do now, in a very practical way, is to no longer act a certain way, right? No longer act a certain way. Here in this passage, as he begins talking about the old self, he argues that you are to act like that which you are claiming. Contrast. And we'll look at it next week um, more fully at the walk of the wicked versus the walk of the Christian. We then as new creatures have a changed behavior, right? Look at the characteristics of the old man now. Next week, Lord willing, as we find ourselves together again, we'll look at the walk of the new man. So I should say here that as we look at this, I'm going to read this again real quickly, just these three verses, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Because of everything in the last three and a half chapters that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to, to their hardness of heart, they have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So, this is what we should call, this is our high calling in Jesus Christ. This is what we are called to do now, right? This is something different that we are called to do. We cannot accomplish the glorious work of Christ by continuing to live the way the world lives. 
We are not bringing glory to God if we are living as the way the world lives, regardless of what we say we are or what we're claiming, right? We're to be distinct from the world. We're to be distinct from the way the world lives. And as we look at these characteristics that we're going to look at here, we have to say, if we still hold these characteristics as a pattern of life, we have to say, am I a believer? Am I a Christian? Now, these are all characteristics. These are all things that we held at one time, right? We all held them. We have to recognize that. We have to see this. We have to look back. And, you know, I, I'd say again, those that are converted at a young age may not recall these things, right? These things may not have been recalled at a young age if I was converted very young. I was not. I was converted at 21 years old. So I remember well how idiotic I was, how jacked up my thinking was. Okay, I remember all that. And, and, and there is a, while I do think if a child is converted very young, seven, eight, nine years old, praise God for that. But I do think that while that is, that is the best situation, by the way, that's much better than to be converted later on. Because why? Because less sin takes place, right? But I do think also whenever you're converted a little bit later, there is a different appreciation, a different view of what has happened. Because you do have a good recollection. Because a 20-year-old knows what sin is, okay? Um, a 17-year-old knows what sin is. And, 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 they, and they get it because there's plenty of it, right? And the longer we go, that's why it's so much better for one to be converted at a young age. But the longer we go, the worse, the, the magnitude, the, 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 the amount of sin, it, it, it heaps on. It's a downward spiral. So we recognize that as we look at these things that... We have to say, do I hold these as a, as a pattern of my life? The world's standards are wrong. Motives are wrong. The world's aims are wrong. The way of the world is sinful. It's deceitful. It's destructive. And as we think about, and the question that people ask, I wonder what the Lord's call is on my life I'm waiting for the siren to go off. I'm waiting for the verbalization from the cloud. I'm waiting for the writing in the sky for God to tell me the call of my life. You don't have to do that. Read these three verses. This is God's call in your life. And, and, and there's many places throughout the Bible that does this. But this is God's call on your life. To no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So... I, we're looking at four specific characteristics here uh, of the ungodly lifestyle. That's what he does first. And then he goes to the, the next that we'll look at next week. But uh, and, and he still hits on this ungodliness in the second part as well. But we look here at these four specific uh, characteristics, if you will, uh, of this ungodly lifestyle of that you and I who call ourselves believers, th that which we are to forsake. So... Firstly, to be worldly. To be worldly is to be intellectually futile, he says. You'll find that unregenerate people oftentimes live very 
little different than animals. They live quite like animals. As Paul states here, they live in the futility of their minds. In this passage, all the way through to the new creation, he speaks a, a lot about learning, much learning, understanding uh, the mind, the truth, all these things that are related to the intellect. Unbelievers and Christians think differently. They should be thinking differently, right? And thus should act differently when it comes to spiritual issues, moral issues. An unbeliever cannot think straight. They can't think rightly about these things. It's intellectual futility. Creation. Think about creation. If you think about everything that has been created, the cosmos, uh, the planets, the stars, the universe, and all of this, and you're a child and you're sitting in a, a, a classroom, and this guy tells you that all of this that came about came about from a teaspoon of very dense matter. That's where all this came from. A teaspoon of very dense matter. And you got the teaspoon, you got the dense matter. Of course, you couldn't hold it up because it's very heavy. It's very dense, right? <laughs> and, and then at some point, six billion years ago, or whatever number we want to come up with today, this exploded. It exploded, and then here you are. All the complexities of your body. And think of, think of your eye. And everything that it takes, I, I, I don't know, I can't explain that. Some, somebody in here might be able to explain that. But think of the eye and what it takes for, you, for your eye to take in and see everything that it does. There's a lot of science going on there that I can't even begin to explain. But it just happened. Now, how much time do you have to spend being educated to become so unbelievably stupid? as to think that. But unbelievers can't, there's, you can't think straight. And because you can't think straight, you come up with stuff like that. That we come from the cosmic sludge, right? That's what they say. This is the kind of stuff that, that they say that billions of years ago, and then this happened. But when you can't think straight, when you're intellectually futile, you can't think straight. And this is where it comes. We wouldn't think about a creator God. We wouldn't murder thousands of babies a year and call it anything other than what it is, which is just baby murder. And then we try, then it's tried to be made a political issue by, and then both sides fight over this, and this side manipulates these people, and this side does, does what they do, and they, and they, they, no. This is a spiritual matter. This is lives. Uh, Shelley mentioned this morning that in Europe right now, they're having discussions on uh, when you can, euthanasia on children. And, and up to one year old and between one and 12 and depending on the country. And that this is legal in some places to kill a child up until they're one year old. Why are we talking about that? Because of intellectual futility. Because they can't think straight. They have no basis to look at life as being precious. And that these children or this 85-year-old, whatever it may be, is made in the image of God, and their life matters. And it's important. They can't think straight. Where else would something like that come from than the intellectually futile? Or just call it stupid, right? Look at a career criminal, a guy that he just can't seem to stay out of trouble, right? Now, not all unbelievers are criminals. We recognize that. They're not all felons, but this kind of shows this 
shows intellectual futility. I read a, 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 some research of those that study criminal behavior, and they often say the problem is overwhelmingly just warped thinking. Wow, imagine that. It was just their warped thinking. It really wasn't their upbringing or lack thereof. It really wasn't this environmental problem. All those things do contribute, right? We recognize that. Upbringing can, you know, what do they say? That, you know, we, we spend the rest of our lives getting over the way our parents raised us, right? But it's overwhelmingly warped thinking. It's intellectual futility, right? If you notice, and this is what they mentioned, the criminal often derives as great an impact from his activities during the non-arrestable phases of his life than he does from crime. His jacked up thinking pattern affects his entire life. It's not just crime. It's a description of the mind of a lost person. He may not be a felon. He may not be killing people. He may not be robbing banks, but his whole thought process is jacked up. It's not just that they're simply corrupted by their environment or that their dad wouldn't play catch with them, right? All those things can make it worse. But this is a matter of how do I see the world? How do I see the one who created me? Sinfulness flows out of the heart, out of the mind. So there must be a complete change of the heart. There must be a complete change of the mind. For me personally, I heard the gospel. I started thinking about facts. I started thinking about truth. I, you know, I was read this in the Bible and look at this and think about this. And does this make sense? And I'm thinking about facts and truth. But only God is going to open the eyes, right? Only God does the conversion. I can't do that on my own. God changes the mind. But this is the process. You hear the gospel. You hear the truth. And it's a gift of repentance that comes from God. A change of mind about ourself a change of mind about our spiritual condition, mostly a change of mind about who God is and who I am in light of that holy God. And then that intellectual futility changes and everything, the way that I see things change, right? We have to recognize, has my thinking, the way I view and think about things, how has it changed? What this results in is that the unregenerate person plans and resolves everything based upon his own thinking. He becomes his own ultimate authority, right? What I think is what, that's, that's what the truth is. And then you come up with all the nonsense of postmodernism and my truth and your truth and, and, and everybody's truth is okay and it's just as free for all for truth. And, and then somebody says that there's no absolute truth, which when they say that, they're stating what? An absolute truth. So it's to become your own ultimate authority, following your own thinking and, and the, the self-centered emptiness that characterizes our day. Without repentance, though, without repentance and trust in Christ, without the gospel, folks will continue seeking the same futile goals in the same futile ways. But then also he says that there is an ignorance of the truth. This ignorance is, uh, this is another characteristic of the ungodly. We have to recognize, we have to see this ignorance is to leave us now, right? It's not, they're not only futile in their thinking, but spiritually uninformed. They're darkened, excluded, and ignorant in verse 18. Now, this is an interesting thing for us, right? In our day, because people have never been more educated than they are today. Josh said it a few weeks ago, right? People have to go to school to get as stupid as what they're getting, right? 
our people pride themselves in all the science and all the technology and all kinds of achievements of the mind. And to be called ignorant is more offensive than to be called a sinner. You call somebody a sinner. Um, there was a, a larger discussion at, at work the other day, and one guy had said, I'm going to hell. That's what he said. He said, he said, well, I'm going to hell. And and, uh, you know, and it's like it really didn't bother him. He didn't really get it, though. Right. He didn't really understand that. And so I, I engaged him on that and he he really didn't get it. And then once he was engaged on that, he really wanted to stop talking about it. But um, <laughs> ignorance and sin, these things, they, they go hand in hand. Right. The wicked may be continually learning and continually knowing more stuff, and they put this bank of, of stuff that they, uh, of, of true stuff maybe even, that, that just in the world that they keep putting into their minds and continually learning, but they're not coming to a knowledge of that which matters. A fallen, spiritually dead person is unable and unable to comprehend the things of God, and as smart as they may be, the things of God are the only things that are really worth knowing. And they have a real hard time with that statement. Of all this stuff you know and all and as smart as you are, the things of God are really the only things that are worth knowing. A child, our small little children that are running around here and doing what they're doing and learning the things they're learning and hearing the, the Word of God, regurgitating the Word of God and, and, and spouting theology and all the stuff that they're learning, which is awesome stuff and it's... it's, it's, it's it is God-glorifying and awesome to watch tiny people do that. But these children who see the truth, know the truth, believe as a child, they understand these things better than the university scholar who thinks that they're so unbelievably smart. This ignorance requires something. It requires the grace of God if it is going to be lifted. This being darkened, this is just a condition of spiritual darkness, right? These are people that are, as it says, excluded from God and must be brought in by God. There's a determination of sin, and thus, as it states in the first chapter of Roman, God gave them over to the lust, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So, what do you do? You hear the truth and you repent, Right? Because so often say, people say, well, I'm going to think about this. I did that, by the way, for, for a while. But people hear the, hear the truth and they say, well, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to look over this. But this is not something to mess with because what he gets into here is some pretty dangerous stuff if I, if I linger, if I don't act, if I don't move forward, if I don't follow, if I don't obey the command of Christ to follow him. It's serious. As men continually persist in following their own way, they will eventually be confirmed in that choice by the God of heaven, right? If I continue in this way, if I say, no, I'm not going to go down this path, I'm going to go down this path, then what am I going to do? I'm going to be confirmed in that. God is going to affirm me in that ignorance. If you're determined not to believe, I will not believe, you won't. We see what God did with the Jews. Because so often people have to say, well, I have to see this sign. We see this in the New Testament. We see this in the Gospels, right? Well, we have to see this sign or we have to see this thing happen or we have to see... Jesus was standing right in front of them. It wasn't good enough, right? 
you walk away from the light and you will continue to be more darkened continually in your understanding. The tragedy of this unbelief is that if I continue in this, I make myself my own God and I'll become spiritually calloused. We have to be very careful because uh, there is what I think, and, and I think an application here, I, I believe that, uh, especially as we head into the, uh, it's, it's always not, you know, right now, of course, we got, I didn't know if you knew this or not, but there's an election coming up. And um, this always really invigorates family conversations. And, and, uh, and now we're heading into Thanksgiving and, and then Christmas and, and, you know, those conversations as they go around, I know um, with a, a certain part of my family, that'll be very spirited. Um, and, uh, but you think about these things and, and we have to be careful. Right? We have to be careful because as we have these conversations with our friends and, and as we think about the Thanksgiving dinners that are coming up and conversations that really matter outside of politics, okay, things that really, really matter, these, these life things. Because, again, whenever we're saved... Our worldview completely changes. Everything changes, regardless of what it is, right? And so when we have these conversations over Thanksgiving dinner or at Christmas with family members or friends or whoever it is, there's warning here, right? There's a warning here that the more that I say I'm not going to go that way for whatever reason, right, which that reason ultimately is just sin, that there is a callousness that happens and there's a warning here. Be careful because whenever you continue in sin, you turn away from God, you become more and more insensitive about spiritual matters, right? The sensitivity about spiritual matters, it, it, it dwindles, it goes away. It happens to the point that you don't even care about the consequences anymore. Because I just heard a kid tell me the other day, I can't remember what, what we were doing. We were somewhere and one of these kids said, wasn't my kids, thankfully, but one of these kids says, well, it doesn't matter unless you get caught. Well, what was his concern? His concern was for the consequences, right? That's what he was concerned about. That's why we don't do a lot of things, right? It's because of the consequences, but it will get to the point where you don't even care about the consequences anymore. It gets so bad. You go to jail. You come out. You go to jail. You come out. And if, if you do that, at some point, folks that are repeat offenders so often, it's like they don't even care about the consequences anymore. It goes into the conscience to scar it where it's not even sensitive, to sear the conscience and whether there wants to whether it wants to be admitted or not if if you're if you're in unrepentant sin living as one who has not trusted Christ that unflinching wickedness and the sins that are held so dear will be the very thing that kills you right a spiritual death is far worse than physical death we don't stand by. It's not to stand by enduring the agony of consequences of sin and live in the way of death. You have to be careful because you will become completely desensitized to the very thing that is killing you. It's like the frog in the pot of hot water. This is to display. This is the depravity of the mind on display. That's the fourth thing that he talks about. Depravity of mind. We're depraved. 
there's not anything good in us that can call upon Christ until we ha have that gospel heard, until we have that which says we are going to be obedient to Christ, that God does that work in us through the Holy Spirit, through the proclaimed word. All of this that we talked about is working in the wicked of which we all once were, right? Don't let your pride get a hold of you and think, well, I just wasn't like one of those people, right? But it's either once we, we once were or we are currently. And it all flows out of the depravity of mind. Leads to a gross, verse 19, sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with that greediness. Our depravity shows our inability to come to God without His mercy, right? It requires His mercy. While all that's true, we know all people initially recognize, at least initially recognize, some standard of right and wrong, some sort of right and wrong initially, right? With a certain sense of shame when they act against that standard. Um, but as folks continue to overrule conscience, of, as they train themselves to do evil, as I train myself to ignore my guilt, and to stop there for just a second as it concerns guilt, um, I am a guy that can thank God for cancer. My dad had cancer. He died fairly young. In my mind, he died fairly young because I wish I still had him. So he was young. Um, he was 63. Yeah. And uh, that's fairly young, I think, anymore. And uh, But cancer gave him the opportunity to think about life and death. Gave him an opportunity to think about the gospel. Gave him an openness that he didn't have before to hearing the gospel. And about three-ish months before he died, he was born again. Praise God that dad got cancer. I would rather him die of cancer at that point, a saved man, than live to be a ripe old 97 and die lost. He had an opportunity. He couldn't ignore his guilt anymore because he was facing death, right? But that's what happens. It's a, it's, it's folks, as they become seared, as these things happen, it's to ignore guilt, train myself in evil, live by my own wicked desires, and then given over to sensuality. Man is made for God, though. Man is made for God. Man is made for God's glory, for God's standards. But when he rejects God and his standards, he destroys himself in the process. And the corruptions, you don't have to look far to find corruptions in our society, right? The corruptions of society that we live in, they're not the result of some psychological or sociological circumstances. The result of sin. They're the result of personal choices of individuals that are against God. They're the result of personal choices that are against God's way. Sexual perversion. Homosexuality, infanticide, lying, murder, all types of moral degeneration that we see. What, again, Shelley, as I already mentioned, as she was talking about that which is happening in Europe, of now we're, we've gone from, from, from killing um, a, a one-year-old to now the, they can go all the way up to 10. But you know what? There's no difference. I don't care if the child is 12 or still in the womb. There's no difference, right? But that's the degradation. That's once you accept one, you accept the other. And we become callous to this. Calloused through ways of life, through the choices of those who indulge in them. Books, TV, movies, internet. It's like a dripping sewer that then just busts that has become a broken sewer main. 
And this is the stuff that makes for some of the largest money making in our country. Now, my friends, we are not to think our own way. You know, we're not to do our own way. We're not to just go pursue our own destiny. Those are the things that cut you off from God. Without the crucified and resurrected Savior, we will continue to go down an increasingly shameless path and become more and more calloused. The godless life becomes a mindless life. It characterizes every unbeliever and every deceived unbeliever that just thinks, well, I'm okay. I'm a nice guy. Never killed anybody. Never hurt anybody. I give money to the homeless guy. I'm okay. It's to justify the debauchery in your own mind. Now, if you don't reach those kind of extremes, know that it's only because of God's grace. That's opportunity, right? That's opportunity to repent and believe, take advantage of that. Again, as a word of application, and as you, you meet with your lost friends, your lost family, your lost co-workers and all that, take advantage of that. If that, if that grace is there to where they haven't got, and they will listen, take advantage of that. Repent. That's the... That's the that's the cry, right? To repent, turn from these things, run to Christ, come to the full and unhindered grace and mercy of God. And if we clearly see the truth of sin and the need for repentance, it's to repent, right? Jesus will indeed save you if you're solely depending on Him and Him alone. Not anything else. Yeah, I'll take Jesus and add Him to this because I'm a great guy. No, I'm not a great guy. It's Christ and Christ alone then you will have the walk of the new self with the new heart, with the renewed mind. And now I can serve and glorify God. It's for us to repent and trust Him. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we thank You, first of all, for salvation, but that which now has given us the ability to think clearly to see things rightly, to have a worldview that sees things as they are, to now we can serve you. Now we can do just as you have asked. Now we can uh, seek to glorify you in the things we do, things that we couldn't do before, living in that futility, living in debauchery and ignorance, Father. Thank you for conversion. Thank you that now, as Paul says, we are to no longer operate as we once did. Now things have changed. Now we can take great joy in trusting you and following you. Where we never thought, especially if we were older when converted, we never thought that it could be like this, that, that those things that were, were wicked and evil that somehow we enjoyed, that we didn't think we could walk away from that, but now we see that that was not life, that was death. We thank you for that realization. We thank you for Jesus. And Father, we thank you that... Um, that you have given us the gift of repentance and the ability to trust you and follow you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.